I'm telling you the truth, Doc. You gotta believe me. Then tell me, future boy, <laughs> who's president of the United States in 1985? Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan? The actor? <laughs> then who's vice president? Jerry Lewis. A teenager from 1985 travels to 1955 and gets in the way of his parents falling in love, threatening to erase his very existence. This week, we geek out hard for one of our favorite movies ever, discussing semi-prime numbers, cars that look like they were built in Minecraft, and what Marty and Doc have in common with Woody and Buzz. Great, Scott! We're about to find out if Back to the Future stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the blood Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say The movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Test of Time podcast. My name is Alan Noah, and who are you joining me on my video screen? This is James Brief, and Al, there is no screen here. (gasps) James, you and I are in the same room at the same time for the first time since March 2020. It's basically a super high-definition, real-time, 3D polygon uh, hologram of me, but... You can touch and interact and like, it's basically me. Wait, is it basically you or is it you? It's me. I'm here sitting in the room with you because yay! yay! This is so cool. I have to say, without exaggeration, I have talked to you the most throughout the pandemic more than any of my other friends. I mean, family excluded, of course. But even still... Even though I have seen you every single week for the past 15 months, it's still really good to see you, man. It is good to see you. It's good being back here. I feel like I haven't like spent much time in the city you know, since the pandemic started, and I feel like your apartment looks pretty much the same, basically. But you know, still, it's like, wow, remember this place? Remember being in other places besides my house? Right, and it's funny you say that, that my apartment looks the same, because I've had all these plans to replace this couch and do this, but, you know, back uh, last summer, I'm like, nobody's coming over. Like, why (laughs) should I get, like, a brand new couch? I'm inevitably probably going to get some stain on it, you know, a year from now, when my first friends are coming over. And I'll be like, no, I promise, it's sort of brand new. You know, so I'm going to be doing some stuff, but it's almost like we're babies doing our first step our first solid food because people are like have you been to a restaurant yet and my girlfriend and i uh we were like we went to our first party and it was like a small party and everyone was vaccinated there and it was like uh dumbass this is like all stuff like you know ooh, you're like freedoms of 2021 that's like february of 2020 right it's not your first first it's like your first post-covid whatever. And this is our first post-vaccination in-person podcast. So like add that to the list of, you know, first indoor dining, first Mets game, first podcast record. And we're celebrating this special occasion by talking about Back to the Future and behind the scenes fact, I really wanted to do Back to the Future for episode 200. That was like my big plan, my grand dream. And then, you know, global pandemic kind of got in the way. 
I was hoping maybe we could do it for 250 and that didn't work out. But you had said somewhere along the way, why don't we make that our first episode back? And I get it in my head that like, oh no, we need to save like the big movies for special episode numbers, but whatever, that doesn't matter. Like what matters is doing something special on a special occasion. And this is definitely a special occasion. Back to the Future is certainly a movie that you and I love and we have talked about many, many, many times long before we ever started podcasting. Our show logo is very clearly an homage to the Back to the Future logo, which was designed by my friend Courtney Enos Robertson. And in honor of this special occasion of us talking about Back to the Future, we have new podcast cover art, which I think is pretty damn cool. Who put this together, Al? This is really well done. They're at podcast cover on Instagram. They started following us or they liked one of our posts and I was looking at some of their stuff and I was like, this is really cool. Maybe our logo could use a little refresh and it's still the same test of time logo for our show title, but you know, the art is different. It includes us as Doc and Marty. And when I was thinking that we would do this for episode 200, I actually started looking into doing a photo shoot with a DeLorean. I don't know if I ever told you that or not, but like I was literally talking to some guy in February of 2020 about like how we could arrange a photo shoot with a DeLorean. Obviously COVID got in the way. Also, it's like crazy expensive. Like if you own a DeLorean that you can like make look like the time machine in this movie, you can charge a lot of money to get like knuckleheads to come and pay money to do a photo shoot with it. Well, I mean, I've seen that before. Basically, what we got to do is just come to Comic-Con with me this fall. And there is an area where you can take a picture with the original 60s Adam West Batmobile. There's always a DeLorean there. I mean, you could also just do it with a green screen, I guess. But I thought it would be cool if like we actually had a DeLorean and then we could have like behind the scenes photos of us in the DeLorean and stuff. Oh, absolutely. We'll dress up for Comic-Con like Marty and Doc. Okay, awesome. I'm in for that. And, you know, I know we didn't make it to 250 or 200, a nice, like, round number like that, but 259 is a very special number. It's a semi-prime number. What's a semi-prime number? Well, it's not a prime number, but it's the product of two prime numbers. I'm not even going to venture a guess. What are they? Uh... You mean you don't know? Seven and 37. Okay. I also, don't know how to react to that. Also, it's what's known as a rep digit, meaning it is six to the third plus six to the second plus six to the first plus six to the zero. That's 259. So that's really special. And if that's not icing on the cake enough for you, here's the icing with the, I don't know if you like cherries, but it's got the sprinkles or whatever you want on it. I like cherries. According to Wikipedia, 259 is the country code of Zanzibar. (laughs) Okay, well, there you go. Then it's fine that we didn't do this for episode 200. No, look, it's a movie that both of us clearly love. I think a lot of people out there love it. I think everyone has seen this movie. And I know people that haven't seen this film. You do? Yes. uh, Oh, oh, you mean people who live in Zanzibar? (laughs) I watched this film with my girlfriend, and she had seen the film before as a very young child and only part one. So she remembered 
nothing of this film except like that it existed and that it involved a time machine. Uh, listeners, you can't see this, but my jaw is on the floor. That is crazy. My kids have already seen these movies several times. Yeah, but they're your kids. <laughs> but in case anyone hasn't seen Back to the Future, it's about 17-year-old Marty McFly who's living large in 1985. Then everything changes when his nuclear physicist friend, Dr. Emmett Brown, shows Marty the time machine he made out of a DeLorean. The pair is attacked by Libyan terrorists, Doc gets shot, and Marty escapes in the time machine, traveling back to 1955. In the past, Marty meets his parents, George and Lorraine, as teenagers. Marty gets in the way of their meeting and has to team up with the 1955 version of Doc to restore George and Lorraine's love connection and send Marty back to the future. I'm not going to ask you if this was a hit at the box office. I know it was. Was it the biggest hit of 1985? It had to at least been one of the biggest hits of that year. Well, I'll tell you the top three films of 1985. Let's see if you can get them in order. Okay. Rambo, colon, First Blood, Part 2. I'm going to give you four of them, actually. I'm going to mix it up. Beverly Hills Cop, Rocky Four, and Back to the Future. Try to rank those in order. I'm going to say Back to the Future is one. Beverly Hills Cop is two. Rocky Four is three. And Rambo colon First Blood Part 2 is four. Wrong. Aww. Price is right rules. You get to switch one answer. All right, I'm switching Rocky and Rambo. You got it. Ding, 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 ding. You win a new Honda. Yay. Is it a Honda Odyssey? The minivan? (laughs) For the best a father can get. Yeah, this was a huge, huge deal in 1985. I mean, huge kind of underestimates it because it had a $19 million budget. And apparently it had been rejected like dozens of times at like every studio. Yeah, ridiculous. And the script went through so many different versions. Some thought it was too G-rated. Others thought it was too raunchy. Finally, this thing gets made for $19 million. And it opens at number one with $11 million. It opened in July of 1985. And it was number one July, August, September. It was number one for 15 weeks in a row, except for one week. And then it goes back to number one in December. And then goes back again to number one in February of 1986. And the weeks is not number one. It's like number two all year. I mean, this was a monster hit. Interesting. Interesting. Um, You know, the making of this film was pretty wild. Like you said, it was rejected everywhere. The head of Universal wanted to call it this awful title, Spaceman from Pluto, which is a reference to sort of like a line that George says, talking about his science fiction stuff, but uh, horrible. And wouldn't have aged well even in the era of Pluto being declassified as a planet. Well, certainly very true. Uh, I read that the way that Spielberg got around that title was he sent the guy a memo saying that was a really funny joke that we should call the movie Spaceman from Pluto. Everyone thought your joke was really funny. Keep those jokes coming. So that way the guy who said that wouldn't like want to admit, no, no, I meant for you to take it seriously. And he dropped it. Apparently that guy whose name escapes me right now uh, later said that that story wasn't true. But that's the story that went around Hollywood. 
That is interesting. And interestingly, Bob Gale, the guy who came up with the story, you ever hear of how he got the idea? Yeah, it was basically he went home, was talking with his parents, or was looking through his dad's yearbook, right? Yeah, the yearbook. Yeah, and looking at his dad as a kid, thinking... I wonder if my dad and I would be friends. And then I think it was Robert Zemeckis who directed the movie and I think uh, co-wrote this one. I don't think he co-wrote the sequels. I might be wrong about that. But he was saying that that made him think about his mom and like all of the stories that she used to say. And I walked to school uphill both ways and all of these stories that you're like, that's not right. Like that can't possibly be true. And so, you know, the idea of going back in time and hanging out with your parents when they're your peers and not your parents sort of came to be. Yeah, and Bob Gill actually saw that uh, his dad was president of the class in high school, and he's like, my dad, the nerd, was a cool guy. So he got this whole idea that everything was completely different then. And they really wanted Michael J. Fox. And today, you know, he's a superstar, but he was really just a television star at that point. Uh, He was in a pretty successful show at the time. It was called Family Ties. You know, it was one of those family sitcoms, and Michael J. Fox was the breakout star of that. And how did that theme song go? Bet we've been together for a million years. And I'll bet we'll be together for a million more. Something, 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 <laughs> something. <laughs> On the night we kissed. And I can't remember what, what we I ever did before. What we do, baby, without us. What would we do, baby, without us? Sha-la-la-la. And the most important part of that show, what did they show at the end of the closing credits? Oh, well, there was that little title card for, I think it was the production company, where the guy said, sit, Ubu, sit. Good dog. Roof! Right. And Courtney and I and our family, we have a black dog. And when we adopted him, we couldn't think of a name. And Courtney said, oh, we should name him Ubu, like from that thing. It's a very, very specific reference. And some people think it's hilarious. And most people don't get it. I think it's great. And I'm shocked you didn't come up with it. Congratulations to Courtney. It sounds like an owl thing to have come up with. Thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. Courtney is very good at naming dogs. She's named all of our dogs. She's really good at it. Yep, Courtney is great at naming dogs. And you know who's great at directing films? Uh, Steven Spielberg. Yes, but this is the first Amblin Entertainment uh, movie that he did not direct. And he got his uh, his colleague Robert Zemeckis to direct this one. And they really didn't want to give it to him because he was really an untested director. So the year before, he directed a film that we are going to review a big hit from, I think, probably 1984 yeah. uh, with Michael Douglas. You know what film that is? Romancing the Stone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kathleen Turner. It's sort of like an adventure film. We'll, we'll definitely review that. And this film, because they couldn't get uh, Michael J. Fox because of Family Ties, was famously first cast with Eric Stoltz, uh, who we uh, recently saw in Pulp Fiction as the drug dealer, and also Ralph Macchio. He was offered the role, and he didn't want to do it because he didn't really get it, which I think is kind of weird. Like, how do you not get it? Right. I read something, I forget if it was Bob Gale or Robert Zemeckis who said that when he had to fire Stoltz. It was like the hardest conversation he ever had in his life. He felt terrible. He says to this day that Eric Stoltz is a great, great actor, just wasn't right for this movie. And, you know, you can sort of 
get that with no disrespect to Eric Stoltz. If they were watching the dailies and watching the footage and everything and it just didn't feel right, then it was probably ultimately the right call for the movie because you watch this with Michael J. Fox and you can't imagine anyone else, or at least I can't. I can imagine a mustache Burt Reynolds, you know, <laughs> Norm, Norm MacDonald Burt Reynolds, you know. <laughs> eh, doc, man, that's heavy, Doc. You know, but um, when you look at Eric Stoltz at that age, he looks the part completely. He's he's a handsome guy. You know, he has that teen heartthrob look. Sure, and he, and he is a great actor. And these guys did it. And that that completely saved the film. Right. But let's get into the movie itself. Back to the Future. It starts with clocks, which is appropriate for a movie called Back to the Future, and with a very heavy theme about time. You know, it actually starts even better than that. It starts with this brilliant Alan Silvestri, just a tiny little touch of the score. We don't hear the brilliant score for like 20 minutes in. And, you know, this is almost like a perfect screenplay. There's so many little things that you don't need to see. But if you know what this film is, these guys really did their homework. Like this opening scene tells you everything in the film that you need. It tells you that there's something about time with all these clocks in there. It shows that this guy's an inventor, kind of a wacky inventor, because his inventions are like, they're Rube Goldberg devices. It's like, you know, automatic dog food thing, which is useful, but it's it's kind of weird. It reminded me of the invention that Pee Wee Herman has in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Exactly, exactly. And as we slowly uh, gaze across the apartment, or his house rather, we see a television vision report that there was some plutonium that was recently stolen Mm -hmm. and then finally uh we get this uh teenager that comes in cool looking guy Uh, he comes in and he turns on it's like a power source every gauge goes to max he turns everything up you know kind of spinal tap turn it up to 11 you see it's a huge amplifier and the kid has an electric guitar and the moment he puts the pick to a string he blows the amplifier out and the kid is blown 15 feet back and you know it's like whoa that was heavy it's a great gag and i think I kind of forget, like, when I don't watch this movie for a while, just how much physical comedy Michael J. Fox does. And he's really good at it. You know, like, pratfalls and things like that, that can be done wrong. And, yeah, like, watching him, like, go flying across the room, it's still funny. And then uh, he gets a, a phone call from Doc. Doc tells him to meet him that night. He's got something important to show him. And Marty leaves the lab And he's on his way to school and he's riding his skateboard like on the backs of trucks. Like he's kind of like hitching a ride with these trucks and cars and things. And it just looks really damn cool. Also looks incredibly dangerous, but cool. Absolutely. And, you know, if I could have been any one of these teen cool guys, if I could have been... Ferris Bueller, the jock in uh, The Breakfast Club, or Jake from 16 Candles, or any of these like so-called cool guys, I want to be Marty McFly. He was just not popular, and you kind of got the idea that he's probably not a popular kid at his high school, but he's just so cool. Yes, I definitely agree with that. While he's skateboarding, Power of Love by Huey Lewis and the News is playing, which is a great song that definitely stands the test of time. It's just an amazing track. It was then and it is now. 
when he shows up at school, he bumps into his girlfriend, Jennifer, and she's warning him to look out for Strickland, who is, I guess, the principal or the dean or something. And he does catch them and he gives them tardy slips. In my schools, tardies were not a thing. Did you worry about getting tardies? No, but I mean, it's totally believable. We didn't even have detention, I don't think. What kind of liberal hippie school did you go to? I mean, if you were bad enough, then you got suspended. But like, maybe they had detention. I mean, I never even was in a class where someone was like given detention. Wow. You were just in a school of magical good children. No, maybe all my classmates were well-behaved in the days that I was in class. (laughs) All all the (laughs) days you weren't cutting class? Yeah, they were all crazy. But uh, later that day, he's auditioning to be uh, his band in the uh, presumably some school dance or battle of the bands. The judges, who are actually played by Huey Lewis, uh, and the news? No. Or just Huey Lewis? Just, just Huey Lewis. Uh, he plays the guy who, like, rejects uh, Marty's band. And says, right. You're just too darn loud. And his deal to do that cameo was that he wanted to do it uncredited and to wear like a disguise. He didn't want it to be like, look at me, I'm Huey Lewis. He thought it would be funnier if he was like kind of incognito and didn't get a credit, which I respect. I think that's pretty cool of Huey Lewis. That's awesome. I wonder if because of that, he technically doesn't get SAG residuals and all that stuff. Maybe, but I'm sure he gets money from Power of Love and everything. Those are some good DVD sales. And now Marty is, he's lamenting to his girlfriend. She's like, you should send in your cassettes. Your demos are really good. And he's like, well, what if they say I'm no good? What if they say, beat it, get out of here, kid. I don't think I could take that kind of rejection. They're talking about going away for the weekend. And Marty's going to borrow the family car. They see this awesome Toyota 4x4. Then they're like, someday, Jennifer, like I'll have that car. And, you know, it's amazing because that 4x4 still looks pretty cool. Oh, yeah. I'll say definitely there's this game show that I watch sometimes on on one of the like you know smaller antenna channels classic concentration you know with the late Alex Trebek do you ever see that game show sure yeah well because it took place like in the mid 80s and you could always win one of like 10 cars and oh my god these cars look like they were made in like Minecraft like <laughs> they look like they are completely like 8-bit pixelated like a box on wheels like Legos on wheels right they're so ugly I, I just think that these guys got so lucky that they picked a cool looking like Toyota black 4x4 Jeep this car like always looked good yes definitely I mean and then you know the time machine itself is made out of a DeLorean and DeLoreans as a company are not commonplace and you could argue that They don't stand the test of time, but then the counterpoint is they look so cool then and now, and like the gullwing doors are still a thing on Teslas, and this movie kind of immortalized them. I guess what I'm saying is they picked cool cars for this movie. Well, to be honest, they picked a piece of crap car. I mean, the DeLorean was actually like a piece of crap. It was not this like Tesla. It's really high quality, but who knows if it could compete with the other companies? No, it it was a failed business, but they did look cool. You're right. Yes. And it's famous that the original concept of the time machine was going to be a refrigerator. Yeah. But Spielberg didn't want kids reenacting the movie and hiding in refrigerators. And in the old days, refrigerators were not magnet locked they were locked with like a latch like if you ever been to like you know restaurants like walk-in uh, refrigerator so kids would suffocate because of course they're airtight 
So, right. yeah, it was made into a car. And if you're going to make it into a car, good thing they didn't make it into any 1985 car that wasn't maybe like a Corvette because they're all ugly. And, well, uh, the 1984 Pontiac Firebird is a pretty good looking car. <laughs> if you live in the Jersey Shore area. My first car was a 1984 Pontiac Firebird, and it looked awesome, and I was not in the Jersey Shore area. Thank you very much. That was like a 12-year-old car. That's a perfect car for a teenager. This car is 35 years old or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. But while Marty and Jennifer are hanging out in the Hill Valley Town Square, there's a woman who's saying, save the clock tower, save the clock tower. This clock tower was struck by lightning 30 years ago. This is important information. She hands Marty a flyer, and then Jennifer writes her phone number on it because she's staying at her grandma's house. You know, this is pre-cell phones. If Marty's going to call her later, he's going to need the landline phone number at the grandma's house. That's why this piece of paper is important that Marty holds on to it. And he goes home and... The car that he was going to take for the weekend has been totaled, not by Marty or his siblings or his parents, but by his dad's boss, Biff. Yeah, Biff is your quote-unquote alpha male, like, bully. Like, yeah. he, he just treats uh, this guy, George McFly, Marty's father, like a dog, and uh, not like a good dog. Like, like, <laughs> like, you know, this is a terrible owner dog. Right. And... In my headcanon, Biff has already totaled his own car. So when he was at work, he's like, hey, McFly, I'm going to borrow your car. And since he was drunk, he crashes the car. He even mentions that he spilled beer on himself right. when he crashed. Like, you wouldn't call him a loser because he's actually the boss. And, right. you know, he's one of those people that, you know, falls upwards. And Biff is like, hey, Marty, say hi to your mom for me. Yeah. And very creepy. Yeah, it's very creepy. And, you know, we realize that George, his father, is a total submissive, like, wimp. Lorraine, uh, Marty's mother, she's this unfit, alcoholic woman who's pale and, like, you know, like, unhealthy pale. Not like, ah, they're light-skinned. No. Right. I will tell you, as a kid, I did not realize that Crispin Glover and Leah Thompson were basically the same age as Marty McFly. I thought those makeup jobs were fantastic. I bought as a young kid that those were old parents. And right. Marty was a 17-year-old. I think they're basically all the same age within like a year of each other. Yeah, they're very, very close together, which makes sense for the rest of the movie when they're all supposed to be teenagers. But yeah, I mean, the, the makeup is convincing. And Marty's brother and sister are older and they're still living at home and seems like they're in dead-end jobs. I think the brother works at Burger King, right? Lorraine's brother, Joey, was in jail and was maybe going to get out, but nope, he didn't. So we'll just have to eat the congratulations, Uncle Joey cake. What do you think Uncle Joey did? I'll bet you in one of like the cartoon episodes, they go back and like, like have to break Uncle Joey out of jail or something. That's a good question. I never really thought about it. I would hope it wasn't something violent. I feel like it wouldn't be like a white collar crime because they just seem like more of a blue collar family. I don't know. In my head canon, it's it's the same crime as that guy in the Shawshank Redemption, that greaser who's like, hey, he just tried to steal a television. 
like attempted robbery kind of a thing. Yeah, that guy. Like, ah, you know, a naughty boy. You had to go to jail, Uncle Joey. But it seems like he keeps being denied parole. So right. <laughs> I don't think this head cat ended up like, ah, that rapscallion got a bad judge call. Judge was in a bad mood that day. Maybe he keeps getting in fights on the prison yard or something. Yeah, that Joey. And and also the other thing we learn is that the mother's like, I don't want you uh, going away with this Jennifer. She sounds very promiscuous. When I was a kid, I never did any of these things or parked in a car with a boy. It's foreshadowing what's going to happen later. And it's that thing with uh, Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis where your parents tell you these stories. And as a kid, you're like, really? Really? I'll tell you that anytime I tell my kids something about me as a kid, they will go right to my parents and ask. Like, they will be like, hey, grandma, when dad was a kid, did he blah, 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 blah? And, you know, sometimes I have to, you know, stand behind the kids and make the the motions like, Shh, no, don't tell them. Because, you know, you want your kids to think that you were perfect as a kid. Right. I never yelled at my mother when I was a kid. You shouldn't yell at your mother. Exactly. Uh, and uh, Marty goes out to the Twin Pines Mall, uh, I think 117 uh, a.m. or something. Something like uh, that. Something like that. And he sees this uh, huge uh, truck, like this 18-wheeler truck. The back door opens, and the dry ice cloud comes out, and this DeLorean comes. And it's so cool looking. It is. It's a very, very cool reveal. It's the first time we see Doc in the movie, and... As Doc explains what he's invented, this time machine, the staging in this scene is just so amazing. I love it. Basically, it's just Doc kind of like running back and forth while he's explaining the time machine and Marty's kind of like running back and forth after him. And then when he does the experiment with Einstein, Doc is controlling the car with remote control and Doc and Marty are standing directly in the car's path. And it seems like this is the first time that Doc is doing this experiment. And you see that Marty is like, "Um, I'm going to go stand over here now. And Doc doesn't say anything, but he just kind of looks at Marty and he looks like hurt. And then like Marty's like, "Okay," And he kind of like steps closer to Doc. I mean, it seems very dangerous and reckless for the first time you're doing the experiment. But just like the way that every movement is done in this scene is Perfect. It's just, it's really, really well done. This scene is wonderful, and we've got the wonderful uh, Alan Silvestri theme in the background. And we've now got this car, and we get the famous 88 miles per hour, which is just such a cool number, I think. It's a little bit, like, faster than what you're ever going to drive. But, like, once in your life, you may have been in a car that went that far, and you're like, woo, cool, 88 miles per hour. You've only driven 88 miles per hour once in your life? Come on. Not often, but it, it has happened. And it's, it's really actually a very simple special effect. You know, just some blue lights turn on on the car. You got these sparks coming out of the car in all directions. And then a flaming pair of tire tracks. It's really, really well done. And the special effect holds up, I think, perfectly today. 
you could probably make it look even better with today's technology, but I do not think it looks bad. I think it looks fine. No, when they remake this inevitably after Zemeckis and Gale die, because they won't make it during their lifetime. But, you know, the moment after the second one of these two gentlemen is dead, the children will announce that they have sold the rights to a production company for a billion dollars. I hope not, but probably. And in that remake... They will do this in CGI, and it will technically look a little better, but this sure. this doesn't need any improvement, this scene. I agree. Um, when Doc is explaining the time circuits, he says that if you wanted to go witness the signing of the Declaration of Independence, you go to July 4th, 1776, or you could go see the birth of Christ on December 25th in the year zero. I'm like, I'm a Jew, and I know that's wrong. Like, that's not right, and Doc should know better than that. Right, right. And also, the rules of this time machine means he would have time-traveled to California, and there is no year zero. Right. right? Like, there's one year before Christ, B.C., and year 1 A.D., the first year of our Lord. There's no year zero. Although, I wonder what would happen. Where would the car take you? (laughs) I I don't know. But that did just kind of leap out of me. I'm like, hey, that's not right. And there's also a line where Doc says that he's going to travel into the future, and he says that he'll find out who will win the next 25 World Series. And that's a throwaway line, because, like, when they were writing this movie, there was no intention for a sequel But, you know, that kernel of an idea turned into, you know, a large part of the plot of Back to the Future Part 2. You know, it's a complicated concept, time travel, and he just explains it so easily. I love just the simplicity of looking at the time circuits, and he says, this one tells you where you are, this one tells you where you're going, this one tells you where you were. Great, I got it. This makes perfect sense now. Uh, Doc says that to power the time machine, it's actually uh, powered by plutonium. And as we know, neither in 1955 or 1985, or 2015 for that matter, plutonium is not exactly available in every corner drugstore. So Doc ripped it off of the terrorists of the time, which were the Libyans. And uh, just as Doc is about to leave and venture on his journey to the future and see the next uh, couple dozen World Series, the Libyans come to get their revenge on the guy that ripped him off and they shoot Doc Brown and he's, uh, you know, he's down and through a stroke of luck that their machine gun jams, Marty is able to escape in the car. You can tell that Marty is not remembering he's driving a a time machine at this point, but uh, he decides to just outrun them. He actually says, let's see if these bastards can do 90 and he puts it into fifth or sixth gear. You know, of course, he doesn't make it to 90 when he hits 88 miles per hour. Everything goes... uh, goes lightning and and he's in a barn 1955 right the people who live at the barn hear the noise they come out with a shotgun they think it's a ufo or something they start shooting marty flees and he gets to the hill valley town square and you hear the music mr sandman and Marty is confused. He doesn't believe that he's in the past. He has every reason to believe that he's in the past, but he can't wrap his head around it. He goes into a diner so he can go and grab their phone book and look up Doc. Looking for a phone book is what someone from 1985 would do, and that did exist in 1955. It's not what you would do today. Now you would just try to, like, Google it some way. But um, in this diner... Everyone is commenting on Marty's life preserver, what they think is a life preserver. It's really just a vest. 
Yeah, it's just one of these puffy sleeveless vests, and it's a running gag. That is funny, but I will say that, you know, I don't think puffy vests were ever a big thing in the 80s, uh, certainly not for that long. No, I don't think so. I think it's one of those things where it's like people know of the puffy vest in the 80s because of this movie, and like only because of this movie. Right, like a DeLorean. Exactly, exactly right. And I will tell you that before I watched this movie with my girlfriend, I said, I'm going to tell you two things that you need to know about this film. One, the movie came out in 1985, so when they refer to like present day, they mean 1985. Sure. And number two, in the mid-80s, there was a calorie-free diet soda called Tab, and there was also a caffeine-free Pepsi version called Pepsi Free. Those things you do need to know before you get into this film, because it was a great gag where uh, Marty walks in, and he's still all razzled, he doesn't know where he is, and he says, give me a tab. What does the guy at the counter say? You want a tab? You gotta order something. Okay, okay, just give me a Pepsi free. You want a Pepsi? You gotta pay for it. Alright, just give me something without a lot of sugar. Right, and then he gives him a milk, right? No, he gives him a coffee. Oh, which yes, w- right. Which would negate the uh, caffeine-freeness that he was looking for. But back then, I don't think they really accounted the caffeine as much for the energy as much as the sugar. That'd be my guess. Right. I can't imagine that decaf was a thing back then. Maybe it was. I don't know. I think Sanka was like a 70s thing, but I don't know. And uh, suddenly, a familiar voice, which we immediately recognize as Biff the Bully from 1985. He's now a young 17-year-old Biff. And he goes, hey, McFly! And Marty instinctively turns, but next to him, we realize, is also George McFly, his 17-year-old father. Oh, you know, who's now 17 years old in 1955. And they both turn to Biff. And Biff, like in the present day of 1985, he's still his bully. He basically says, you got to do my homework for me, but hand it in early so I can recopy it in my handwriting. And he's like, I don't ever want to see you around here again, which is a real power move. You know, sure. You don't need to add that line. You just humiliated the guy. But also, you don't get to hang out where all the kids hang out. It's definitely extra nasty at the end. And A guy who works at the diner is telling George that he should stand up for himself. And Marty recognizes that guy because in 1985, he is the mayor. And when the guy is saying, someday I'm going to be somebody. And Marty's like, oh, yeah, you're going to be mayor. And this guy is like, yeah, mayor, I'm going to be mayor. And the guy who owns the diner or the manager or whatever is like, yeah, right, that'll never happen because this employee is black and he's saying that there's no way there will ever be a black mayor, which is a thing that a person in 1955 might think, but then, you know, 30 years later, that can happen. Absolutely. And, you know, if this movie were to be remade today, it would take place in 1991. I know that, but I don't want to think about that. No, no, no. And I say that not because, oh my God, it makes us feel so old. No, no, no. I say that because I don't think the film would work today. I think if you remake it, you got to go back to 1955 and like rescue grandma, you know, grandma and grandpa or something from not meeting. Because 1980s to 1950s is such an enormous jump culturally, technologically. Marty could easily blend in in 1991 
one if it happened today. Just, you know, you don't have a smartphone. Like, that's about it. Like, it's just not as big a shock. And I think it's amazing. Like, all the things about, like, there's racism in this film. And uh, there's a lot of stuff that is really, really different than the quote-unquote modern 1985 day. Yeah, that is true. There is a lot of that stuff. But when George leaves the restaurant, Marty goes after him, which is dumb. Like, I don't know that I ever really, like, thought about it that much. Like, in the previous times I've watched this movie, I guess I just thought, like, oh, it's his dad. He wants to go see his dad. But his initial instinct to find Doc, that makes sense. Like, go and find 1955 Doc. What's your 17-year-old dad going to do to help you? Literally nothing. But he goes and finds the dad who is in a tree looking at a woman undressing. Is that Lorraine that he's staring at or is it someone else? I wasn't sure. I'm not sure, but it very well could be because uh, he's he's a peeping Tom, as Marty calls him. And George falls out of the tree and he's about to get hit by the car, which, as the original history shows, he's going to get hit by the car. A young teenage Lorraine is going to nurse him back to health and find him like, oh, gee, shucks, uh, you know, sympathy for him, fall in love with him. Then they get married eventually and that's it. But this time, Marty sees his dad about to get hit by a car, and he decides, I'm going to save my dad. So he pushes his dad out of the way. Marty gets hit instead of his father, and now he's knocked out. He's brought in by Lorraine's family, and Lorraine nurses inadvertently her own son back to health. And just like she did with George, she's instantly uh, enamored by this young man. Right. Doc later says it's a Florence Nightingale effect where nurses fall for their patients. It did strike me that... After Marty comes to, Lorraine says, you've been out for nine hours. I was like, nine hours and no one thought to take this kid to a hospital? Like, that's a long time for a kid to be knocked out. If you accidentally hit somebody with your car, I think the first thing you would want to do would be to take him to a hospital. If you thought, oh, maybe it was just a little conk on the head, I'll nurse him back to health at home. Maybe after an hour or two or three or four of this kid not regaining consciousness, you'd be like... Yeah, I better take this kid to a hospital. I could totally see people doing that. Al, you would be shocked at, like, and why did you wait until that tumor in your wrist was so big that when you brush your teeth, you punch yourself in the face? Oh, God. You know, like, some people will wait a long time for going to the hospital. So, unfortunately, that's true. Yikes. But, uh, yeah, she winds up having a little crush on her own son. And there's a great little joke here. That, uh, you know, they got lucky, I guess, that it holds up because the fashion line is still around and popular. But she keeps calling Marty Calvin because Calvin Klein has written all of his underwear. And I could see that, you know, a name written on underwear, that that starts in the 80s. That's not like a thing that happened in the 60s. No, apparently that was a thing in the 50s. That's why they have that joke in there, that people would write their name in the underwear. No, I mean like, you know, Calvin Klein, Calvin Klein, Calvin Klein. That I don't think happened. Oh, you mean like the name of the designer and the underwear. That's probably true. Um, But there are these gags like when Marty goes downstairs and he's with her family and he meets little baby Joey who's in his playpen. And there's like a gag of like, 
oh, he just loves being in this playpen. And Marty says, better get used to these bars, kid. And little baby Joey is so cute. He's adorable. Yeah, there's the little jokes about uh, how Marty's already seen the episode of The Honeymooners, but it's a brand new show for them, and how they have two TVs, which no one would have. And I could understand that because it would be like, in 1985, if someone said they had two computers in the house, you'd be like, nobody has two computers. There's the family computer. Right. And he winds up leaving after Elaine's getting a little too grabby by saying that uh, he could stay with them for the week. He goes across town to find Doc's house. And it's a great gag here. He knocks on Doc's door and Dr. Brown opens the door wearing this ridiculous like light bulb helmet. Marty's like, hey, Doc, I got to talk to you. And he goes, quiet, quiet. And he puts a suction cup on his forehead. And it's just a ridiculous, stupid invention that doesn't work. I think it's very clever that Doc Brown is not this, like, super-duper genius. He's kind of a nutcase. And, you know, there's a fine line between nutcase and genius. I do like that a lot of his inventions are complete crap. Right. I mean— He's an eccentric inventor, and not every invention is going to work. That makes sense. You know, Marty's telling him he's from the future, and then Doc is like, who's the president in your time? And Doc says, Ronald Reagan. And of course, Ronald Reagan is an actor in the 50s, so, you know, that's kind of laughable. If they remade that film today, that would completely work again. Oh, tell me, future boy, who's the president of the United States in 2018? Donald Trump. You know, it would be the same joke. Like, it would be like, oh, come on, you're not from the future. Like, it would be funny. Right. But thankfully, if they made this movie now, that would not be the case. And if you said it about Joe Biden, like, oh, yeah, I mean, you know, he's he's in the Senate. That makes sense. Joe Biden, the junior senator from Delaware? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that joke wouldn't hit quite as much. Um, But the way Marty is able to convince Doc that he really is from the future is he tells him he knows that Doc came up with the idea for the flux capacitor on that day. That's why Doc put this specific date into the time machine, because he's reminiscing of, oh, that was the day when I first had the idea for the flux capacitor, the invention that makes time travel possible. And when Marty says that through the closed door to Doc, then Doc believes it and Marty shows him the video that uh, he was filming at the Twin Pines Mall parking lot of the time machine experiment. I did stop for a minute and think, how the hell does Marty hook up that 1985 video camera to a 1955 TV? The connections couldn't possibly have been the same. You'd need to like go to a Radio Shack or equivalent, maybe a Sears or something to get some special wiring connectors Something, I would think. Or you'd have to live in an inventor's house. Valid point. I guess he might have something lying around. But the funniest part is when 1955 Doc hears 1985 Doc say that he needs 1.21 gigawatts of power, which is just not a thing in real life. There's no such thing as a gigawatt. But there's no way that 1955 Doc can come up with 1.21 gigawatts. To have that much power, you need something like Oh, I don't know. A bolt bolt of lightning. lightning. (gasps) Exactly. Yeah, but the problem is you never know when or where a bolt of lightning is going to (gasps) strike. We do now. 
Exactly. Because Marty got that flyer. The one problem is I always thought the flyer should say, instead of saying it struck at exactly 11.01 p.m. 10.04 p.m. Like 10.04 p.m. It should have said 10.04 and 14 seconds. Like, because there's a lot of leeway in the 60 seconds there. I have the exact same thought. Yes. But anyway, they get the idea that they're going to somehow use this lightning bolt to harness the electricity, channel it into the, uh, the flux capacitor of the DeLorean, and send Marty back to the future. Just like the title of the movie. That's correct. And Marty thinks it's awesome. He's like, all right, cool. Hang out in 1955. Uh, you know, it'll be awesome. And Doc explains that, like, any interference could, uh, you know, have catastrophic results. You know, the whole butterfly effect. And then when Marty explains that he interfered with his parents' meeting today, then he notices that a photograph of Marty and his two siblings, it's starting to fade. Right. It starts with the older brother first, who's, like, starting to lose his top of his head and then it kind of works its way down the older brother then the older sister then it gets to marty so now marty has to like get his parents back together and it's hard because lorraine has already fallen for marty and when marty is talking to george he finds out that they have a lot in common and George is writing these stories and he's too afraid of rejection to submit them anywhere, which is an exact callback to Marty being afraid of rejection for his music. And Biff starts uh, getting handsy with Lorraine in school and Marty steps in and interferes and, you know, stands up for his mom, which is instinct. It's the same thing he did when he pushed his dad out of the way of the car. But it's only making things worse because now he's on Biff's radar and Biff wants to beat the crap out of Marty. And he's making himself look cooler and more attractive to Lorraine while George is just stuck by the wayside and not doing anything. So Marty decides he has to take bold, drastic action and he uses the fact that George is really into sci-fi and he breaks into his house and he puts on the radiation suit that he was wearing when he drove in the DeLorean when he first traveled back to 1955. And he says that he is Darth Vader from the planet Vulcan, which is kind of a sin to combine, you know, Star Wars and Star Trek into like one sentence. Like, you don't do that. That violates the nerd code. Speaking of nerd codes, you know what planet Darth Vader is from? Yeah, he's from Tatooine. I knew it. I knew it. I wanted to see if you knew it. How dare you? I'm insulted that you would even ask me that question. Because if you were going to like say I didn't remember, I was going to really make fun of you. That's why. Although I guess you could say that Darth Vader is from Mustafar and Anakin Skywalker is from Tatooine. Although Sidious first calls Anakin Darth Vader on Coruscant. But that's neither here nor there. The point is, is that... Marty, as Darth Vader, uses music from Edward Van Halen to wake up his dad and tell him that he better ask out Lorraine. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, they got lucky, I guess, that they used Van Halen and not, you know, Wham! or something. (laughs) Well, Wham! was not known for their guitar solos. To be clear, though, this is not the band Van Halen. This is just Edward Van Halen Eddie Van Halen to his friends, uh, doing a guitar solo because apparently the rest of the band Van Halen didn't want to do it. And Eddie Van Halen was like, yeah, sure, I'll record like a guitar solo. So it's this is not like a Van Halen song that you might have heard. 
Oh, okay. But, you know, this is actually uh, mostly a deleted scene. Uh, I'm sure you've probably seen it on the DVDs and stuff. And I have to say, brilliant piece of editing that they got rid of it. It's actually quite a stupid little scene that they perfectly summarize off screen. The only thing you see is Marty saying, Greetings, Earthling. I'm Darth Vader from the planet Vulcan. That's it. And then the next day, George runs up to Marty and says, Oh, Marty, uh, Darth Vader said, if I don't take Lorraine to the dance, he's going to melt my brain. And it's this whole funny thing, but you're actually seeing Marty stand there saying, If you don't take Lorraine to the dance, I will melt your brain. It's a bad scene. It works better as it is in the movie. You don't need to see Marty explaining all this stuff. You just need to see George tell Marty what happened. And... It's funny, like, while George and Marty are having this conversation because Marty is, like, trying to open up a Coke bottle. You need a bottle opener, and that's on the side of the machine, and Marty has no idea how to do that. He's trying to twist it, and that is not said in dialogue. It just happens with their actions, and it's just, like, a cute little moment that's going on while this important exposition is happening, and it's great. Oh, there's a lot of great George exposition because the thing about George is he's your quote-unquote nerd. And then he becomes a cool guy through the events of this film. But the thing is, it turns out George, he always had it in him because there's actually all these little elements that George is kind of cool. Like he opens that Coke bottle, kind of cool. And he gets all this confidence from Marty to talk to Lorraine. He walks into that diner pretty cool. And he goes, Lou, get me a milk chocolate and he's kind of like the Fonz like he's a confident guy and even though he he walks up to Lorraine and he kind of stumbles and stutters a little and accidentally says that he's her density instead of destiny like still he's such a collected cool and kind of cute as Lorraine calls him she's totally falling for him and it's working except just as like Lorraine's like Oh, hi, George. Just then, Biff comes in the diner and is like, Hey, George McFly, I told you never to come in here again. How much money you got on you? Remember what George replies? How much do you want, right? Yeah, oh my God. It's super pathetic. And then the opposite of that is Marty, who stands up to Biff and punches him and then runs out into the square. And And has what might be possibly my favorite movie scene in history. This is possibly just a perfect scene. It's great and it's thrilling and the score works and it's really well done. You do notice that like they're basically just going around the square like in circles. That's fine. It's just cool with a capital C. I mean, it was just so cool how he outwits them. These dumb brutes are going to ram this guy into the manure, and he just runs through the convertible, and they scream, shit, as they fall into shit, and it's just great. And you touched on it. The number one thing is the score. It's got this great hero uh, score right when Marty, like, jumps over the the convertible. It's fantastic and perfect. And the only thing it's not perfect for is George because I don't know if you ever noticed this, but you could see when everyone's crowding around uh, the manure car at the end, George in the background like totally sulks away. 
I would even say he slinks away. Yes, I did notice that. (laughs) I mean, either word works. But yeah, he's heartbroken and it's not working to get Lorraine to fall for George. So then they come up with this plan. And the plan is that Marty will take Lorraine to the dance, but then he will get a little too grabby in the car with her. And then George will come in and rescue her. This isn't great. Now, I'm going to play a quick clip from uh, comedian John Mulaney. He has a great bit on this. I'm going to just play it right here. We thought, you know, that it would be fun for people if the boy, you know, he went back in time and he, he tried to fuck his mom. <laughs> we just, we thought that that would be fun. And then, oh yeah, no, but, no, but don't worry, he doesn't, he doesn't get to fuck the mom because this family friend named Biff shows up and he tries to rape the mom, you know, in front of the son. And then the dad, he has to beat the rapist off of her. Yeah, I mean, he nails it. And I'll tell you that uh, my girlfriend who had never seen this film, when the mom was like grabbing Marty's knee and like, she's like, ew, this is gross. And Biff has like his hands all over uh, Lorraine in the cafeteria. And she's like, this is just happening like in the cafeteria. And I actually was like, yeah, it's the 50s. I don't think anyone would really stop that. Maybe if he punched her in the face, they would stop it. But no one's going to stop a guy just grabbing a woman in the cafeteria. And this plan, I definitely, 1985, saw it from Marty and George's point of view that, yeah, they're going to create this like white knight situation, like the classic trope of a fake mugging. Except it's not a fake mugging where someone's going to like hold up a, you know, a, a comb knife and be like, give me your money. And then someone fake beats him up. The plan for this to work is to make her so scared of this guy that she needs a knight to rescue her. I don't know if Marty really thought this through. No, I mean, it's a really, really terrible, terrible plan. And it would be in any situation, in any context, but it is made actually worse by the fact that he's planning to do this to his mom. Like, that only makes it worse. And again, it's pretty terrible even without that context. And then, of course, what ultimately happens is it's not Marty who does it. It's Biff who comes in. Biff, like, interrupts Marty and Lorraine Biff's, like, goons drag Marty away and throw him in the the car of the band, in the trunk of the car, rather. So when George goes to confront who he thinks is Marty, it's actually Biff. And now it's not a fake attempted assault. It's an actual attempted assault. And keep in mind, in the original 1955 history, Lorraine is not assaulted. She goes to the dance with George and she has a lovely old time. This is happening because of Marty, that his mom is like being assaulted now. That's a very interesting take. And I never thought of that. But the thing that I always loved about the scene is when George opens the door and he's, you know, it's going to be this fixed fight. He's going to, hey, you get your damn hands off her. Why, George, she's my woman. And then he's going to, you know, one punch. He'll be down for the count. And, you know, he's the hero. But, um, you know, once he sees it's Biff and Biff's like, get the fuck out of here, McFly. And then you see Lorraine, like, pick her head up. And, you know, Leah Thompson, she has this look and she goes, George, help me, please. And 
it's actually a little bit terrifying. Like, I hope it's, like, not based on, you know, method acting. This is not, like, get your hands off me, Biff, like, in the cafeteria. This guy's going to rape her. Yes, it is genuinely terrifying. I agree. I don't think it's about method acting, because from what I was reading today, Thomas Wilson, who plays Biff, is apparently the nicest guy in the world. He only wanted to have a good time on set, and apparently... Eric Stoltz was more of a method actor and he was actually hurting Thomas Wilson when he was playing Marty and like was pushing him too hard. And Thomas Wilson was like, hey, man, we're, we're just acting like lighten up. So I don't think Leah Thompson was really scared, but she does a great job of convincing you, the viewer, that she is scared in that moment. And yeah, it would be terrifying for her. Yeah, but... Uh... He does something he should never be able to do, but it is believable that this one perfect punch is able to knock Biff out for, for, you know, 10 seconds. But it's just, it's perfect. And he's able to beat Biff up, save the day. Lorraine, you know, she's now in love with the man who saved her. And everything seemingly is uh, fixed. Right. Except that they're supposed to kiss on the dance floor, which can't happen because the band can't play because Biff's goons threw Marty in the trunk. And while they were rescuing Marty, the guitar player cut his hand. But luckily, Marty can play guitar. So he steps in to play the romantic song Earth Angel. Except he's fading out from existence during the song because then this other bully shows up and like, pushes George out of the way. And I get why that happens from the perspective of the movie where you want to see Marty like fading out from existence and then come roaring back in. And it's great like with the music when he starts playing the guitar again and everything as he comes back when George kisses Lorraine. But I always kind of felt like that bully, like we don't really know who that guy is. And why does George at first start walking away like he's defeated again, like two minutes after he just laid out Biff? Like it just kind of feels like one thing too many there. Um, I think the answer is it's exactly what uh, what you say. They need a reason that after Biff is laid out, they don't want to bring Biff back. Like, he didn't quite beat him up. And then sure. George has to punch him a second time. That would be less satisfying. I think this is just a, a plot point to, to get it across that, you know, he saves the day at the last second. Yeah, I get that. You know, I, I said that the skateboarding scene might be, like, my favorite scene. But this scene might be genuinely the most fun scene of the whole film and that's a Johnny B. Good scene and that's the band they see that Marty can play competently and they want to do one more song they say let's give him something that really cooks and then Marty uh, gives him a song I guess it's from the future even though he says it's an oldie where he comes from and he plays Johnny B. Good and the audience loves it they do and someone else who loves it is the band leader, whose name is Marvin Barry, who calls his cousin Chuck and says, hey, you know that new sound you've been looking for? Listen to this. And I can believe that Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis just kind of wrote that as kind of a not a big deal gag. But I was reading that apparently Chuck Berry was very hesitant to allow the song to be used in the movie. And I think it was because of this context that, you know, Chuck Berry is considered one of the founders of rock and roll. Rock and roll music has its traces in black 
culture and black music. And here's this movie saying, oh, but really, it was a white guy named Marty McFly who invented rock and roll, which isn't a great look. You know, I think they're going for a joke. And I think it's one of those things you can look at it in that context. And had they known there was anything, they would have switched it to Jerry Lee Lewis, Great Balls of Fire. It would be something like that. I get what you're saying. If that is, in fact, the reason why Chuck Berry was hesitant to take the check for this movie, I get it. That's all I'm saying. Of course, he ultimately did take the check. I think I read that he got $50,000 for them using his song. So I guess he ultimately decided it was worth it. But eventually, Marty leaves the dance. He goes back to Doc in the town square. Doc has everything set up, kind of, because right as the lightning is going to strike, the wire is disconnected. And Doc has to scramble up the clock tower to fix everything and reconnect it. And this scene kind of made me think of the end of Toy Story. I realize that might be a weird comparison, but... In the very end of Toy Story, there's all of these things that, like, keep going wrong. And, like, just when you think Woody and Buzz are, like, gonna make it, then, like, something else happens. And then another bad thing happens. And they solve this problem. And then another thing happens. And this final scene in Back to the Future really kind of has that manic energy where there's just one bad thing going wrong after another. The cord breaks. And then... Doc is falling from the clock and then he drops the wire and it's hanging from his pant leg. And meanwhile, Marty's there, but he can't get the car to start. And like, it's just all of these little things. Nothing's going right. And it's relentless, but like in a really good way. Yeah. And and combine that with the fact that uh, something else that Marty's failed at is he's tried to warn Doc Brown about 1985 when he's going to be shot and presumably killed by terrorists. And he tries to write Doc a letter that he won't open until 1985, so hopefully the uh, damage is minimal. But uh, Doc refuses to take the letter. You do see that after he tears up the letter, he stuffs it all in his pocket. And Marty also figures when he realizes there's no letter, I'll go back early and I'll just warn him. And his plan is to go back 10 minutes early. That is not a very solid one. You have limitless time. Why not just go back an hour or the day early or just, you know, not 10 minutes? Right. It's a dumb idea. To be fair, Marty has a lot of dumb ideas in this movie. And I guess you can maybe write it off as like, well, he's a 17-year-old kid. He makes some bad decisions. That's it. So whatever. But yeah, I mean, he is able to go back in time because Doc is able to fix everything and Marty's able to get the car started and he he hits the gas and the lightning strikes the rod at the exact right moment, which, like you were saying earlier, it is weird that the lightning strikes at 10.04, but we don't know which second. And it really seems like that detail is extremely important when, you know, traveling at 88 miles an hour and it has to happen at the exact right moment. And... It turns out I think Doc's calculations were wrong. Yes. Because if Marty had accelerated when the alarm went off, he would have overshot it. Yes. Unless Doc's plan was that the alarm was going to go off early and then Marty was going to need an extra five seconds to start the car, which would be a pretty weird plan. I think you're absolutely right. The calculations were wrong. Yeah. uh, As a kid, I always imagined that I mean, this wouldn't have been as exciting, but to just build some kind of little circular track with a huge lightning rod and have just a wire connected to the flux capacitor. You're just driving around at 88 miles per hour continuously until lightning strikes that thing. 
I love the idea of little five-year-old James, like, working this out in his head, like, sitting in his room, like, drawing pictures of, like, a track. I love that. I also had the idea that even if he was driving all the way, like, up the road, I thought it would be something more of, like, a retracting, like, uh like a fire hose that the wire has been connected for like a quarter mile. And as he's driving closer and closer, it's just winding in. And so he can also overshoot it as well. Yeah. I had a lot of uh, alternate theories of how I would have done this better, but he does ultimately (laughs) successfully send him. And it's very satisfying, not only because it was a very tense scene, you know, he makes it the last second, but it's also satisfying because Doc is happy that he sends Marty the future, but you could tell he's also happy that, like, he's not a fuck-up. Earlier in the scene, when he sees the flux capacitor, like, working, he's like, I finally invent something that works. Could you imagine, like, you're an inventor that everything you invent, like, sucks, and then, like, someone tells you, like, one day you're going to invent the time machine, like... You know, it's a pretty cool thing. Yes, it's a very triumphant moment for Doc. And, like, you feel that triumph for him as well as Marty. But once Marty gets back to 1985, he is, like, ready to go and save Doc with that extra 10 minutes he gave himself. But the car won't start. And that's happened a few times in the movie. So it's believable that the starters busted or whatever. DeLoreans were not well made, as you said. So Marty has to run over to... Lone Pine Mall, no longer Twin Pines Mall. Very interesting because Marty ran over one of those pine trees in 1955. And apparently that crazy farmer never thought to, you know, replant a pine tree. Well, they were twins. You can't just replant a twin. Sure you can. It's a tree. Can you just take a clipping from one and then plant another? Uh, Baby Groot is a different person than Groot. Uh, I think he could have still called it a twin pine and no one would have really cared. (laughs) But I love those small details in this film, you know? Yes. And as Marty runs to the Lone Pine Mall, he sees Doc get shot. He's too late. He's crying over uh, what he thinks is the dead Doc. But then Doc opens his eyes because he was wearing a bulletproof vest. He did read the letter after all. He taped it back together. Yeah. Marty is back in his original timeline. He goes home. He goes to sleep. He thinks maybe it was all a dream. He wakes up and the world that he knows is different. It's the same house, but it's different. There's way nicer furniture. And his brother is wearing a suit and not the Burger King uniform. And his parents show up and they are thinner and seem happier and more in love with each other and Biff is outside detailing the car because he is not George's boss now. Everything around them has changed all for the better and we'll talk next week when we talk about Back to the Future Part 2 about how Crispin Glover wasn't in this movie. Apparently that was for several reasons but one of the issues he had with Zemeckis and Gale was he didn't like the end of this movie because he felt like the nicer house and like all of the material things that the McFlies have at the end of the movie that they didn't have in the beginning of the movie sent the wrong message. He felt it was very like materialistic, you know, like Marty gets that four by four that he looked at in the beginning of the movie and he thought was so cool. You just kind of assume that the McFlies are wealthier now. So, you know, his parents could afford to buy him that truck. 
And Crispin Glover felt like that was the wrong message to send. And you could debate the merits of that, but I sort of see where he's coming from. You know, he felt like the reward should just be that his parents are happier. Yeah, I could totally see them making subtle changes. Like, uh, instead of his brother being, like, Burger King in the beginning, he could have been, like, like a depressed artist or something. And now he's, like, a happy artist. You don't necessarily show that he's rich, but he's very happy doing what he's doing. And I agree with you. It's a very interesting take. But I will say that George and uh, Lorraine, they're just, uh, like you said, more in love. And they are fitter. And you know, not that, you know, being thin means uh, you know, necessarily, like, happier. But they were both depressed in the beginning. And she was an alcoholic. And George is, like, eating uh, peanut brittle, like, out of the box in a bowl of cereal like pretty gross like and yeah. these people are just like they're happier with their lives now and it all stemmed from the self-confidence but that's a very interesting take that they could have conveyed that they weren't winners because they had a truck right and I, to be fair i've always thought that if everything got better why would they be living in the same crappy house that is very true i also think that you could make the argument that why are the kids still there because when you think about it if george and lorraine's relationship has changed what are the odds that they would have had sex at the exact same time and created the exact same three kids? Yeah, yeah. That's a common uh, thing in these time travel films that you don't have to do anything complicated to change the future. Just go back to the bad guy's parents' house, like the night he's going to be conceived. Just fire a few guns in the air. That's all. Just scare them for like a second. So they just like, yeah, oh, they have sex like 20 minutes later and a different sperm, uh, you know, like uh, fertilize the egg. Totally different. No Hitler now. Exactly. I was reading something where they said that this movie doesn't actually subscribe to the butterfly effect theory where like the tiniest change will have catastrophic consequences. The changes in this movie and kind of the whole series are like localized to like one specific thing. So if you just kind of like buy that as a generality, you can just be like, okay, and not really think about those details, which honestly, fine, I can give it a pass on that. I agree. I mean, any time travel film, you're going to have a problem with one of these things. But, you know, Marty's happy. He's got his truck. Jennifer shows up. They're going to go for their weekend away. But then Doc shows up and says, there's something that's got to be done about your kids. And they fly off into the DeLorean. And the movie ends on like this quasi cliffhanger, which Zemeckis and Gail have said they kind of just put that last scene in there like as a joke. They weren't planning to do a sequel. That really wasn't anything that they thought about. It was just kind of meant as like a gag, which is funny, I guess. But having seen this movie as a kid, I definitely wanted to see more adventures of Doc and Marty from that little moment there. Oh, 100%. And I also believe they didn't think there was going to be a sequel because the setup of Marty and Jennifer, you both have to come with me. Something's got to be done about your kids. It's a weaker uh, plot device for the second film to drive it. And, you know, it's very interesting. When I was watching this on Netflix, you know, roads where we're going, we don't need roads. And they fly off into the credits. For years, I always saw a sign that said to be continued. And apparently that was not in the original theatrical release. It was in the VHS release. And like yeah. all the years of like HBO and, you know, it was on TBS or TNT, whichever one of those it was on every week. Like it always had to be continued. So it seems that they always had this idea. But you're right. It was not planned that way. And that's how the movie ends. It's supposed to be a one off. And here they go again. 
and you know you just imply like, what's going to happen in your own head canon, which I have lots of adventures in my head canon. <laughs> head canon. Um, I feel like I don't need to ask you if it stands the test of time. I think this is a pretty clear answer for both of us. You know, it definitely stands the test of time, a hundred percent, and. At several points in my life, I would say, you know, any year, if you ask my top five films during, you know, 15, 20 years of my life, this was the number one film, my favorite film. It's just such a wonderful film. It makes me so happy watching it. The music is so great. You know, the things that like don't hold up is, is really just the 80s-centric jokes and and the 80s fashion. You know, Marty McFly's vest always looked ridiculous to me. Even in the 80s, it, it does look ridiculous. You know, but the acting is fantastic. Everyone is great in it. Robert Zemeckis, certainly, you know, he's proven his ability to uh, direct films, although you don't like uh, Forrest Gump. But uh, I could go on about this film, but it's just so great. The perfect bully, the perfect redemption, the perfect action. And it's kind of an everyman adventure because Han Solo, I don't relate to Han Solo or even Ferris Bueller. But Marty McFly at least kind of looked like an everyday kid. I always loved this film, and I'm looking forward to talking to you about uh, part two next week. And yes, so for me, Back to the Future does stand the test of time. What do you think, Al? Yeah, of course. This movie definitely stands the test of time. There's no question about it. I mean, the screenplay is so great. I mean, there's just so many little things. The direction, the actor's expressions are great. After George beats up Biff and then Marty is telling Doc what happened, he says something like, my dad never stood up to Biff in his entire life. And Doc just kind of like raises an eyebrow and thinks about it for a second and then shakes it off. And is like, okay, no matter, we got to send you into the future. Like he realizes that they have changed the future. They have affected the space-time continuum. Doc sees that and You, the audience, can see that Doc sees that if you're paying attention. You get more when you watch this movie again and again. It's just brilliant. It's layered. It's unbelievably rewatchable. It's inherently quotable. It's memorable. The fact that we designed our show logo to look like that. I've had people come up to me while wearing the Test of Time t-shirt or mask or whatever. Yeah, I wear our own merch. Maybe that's lame and I'm that guy, quote unquote, but people have like not read that it said the test of time and just kind of seen the logo and been like, oh, I love Back to the Future too. That ride at Universal Studios was there forever. I remember as a kid going on the Universal Studios tour in LA and you would see the clock tower and they would tell you that clock tower, they redesigned it for 1955, 1985, 2015, and the bad 1985. I don't know if that's still there or if they even still do the tour anymore. But, like, this story has endured. Um, Rick and Morty is a very different thing, but, like, clearly has taken inspiration from Doc and Marty here. Yeah, of course this movie stands the test of time. It's a no-brainer. All right, two for two. And that would have been the end of our podcast if uh, (laughs) either one of us uh, voted the other way. Absolutely. But for next week's episode, James, do you think we have enough road? Um, I don't know. Do we need roads where we're going? No. Where we're going, we don't need roads. Next week, of course, we have to do Back to the Future Part 2. We'll be talking about it then. In the meantime, you can talk to us at Test of Time Pod 
on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. You can email us at thetestoftimepodcast at gmail.com. We want to know your thoughts on Back to the Future. We want to know your thoughts on our new podcast cover art. What do you think? Kind of cool, right? And uh, we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye. Now make like a tree and get out of here.